Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So, as you heard Mackenzie say last week, we finished not only our Wednesday night Revelation Bible study, but last week we finished our Revelation series, our preaching series. And next week, we're going to start a brand new series, a little bit distinct. It'll be a series on the minor prophets, creatively titled, The Not-So-Minor Prophets. Um, and what we're going to do each week is look at one prophet for the whole week, just to kind of get a bird's eye view of the book as a whole, because it is kind of an often neglected section of scripture. And so we're going to spend a little time there and give you the big picture with that. But this week, we're going to be looking at Psalm 5, uh, and we want to focus on prayer as a theme for that. So let me read to you Psalm 5, and then we'll jump in. The word of the Lord. To the choir master for the flutes, a Psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, as we do each week, for your word. We ask your blessing on your word. We ask your blessing on our time together. May it be pleasing to you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen and amen. So as you can see from the, the slide here, I've titled the message, the ele- elevating our view of God, and my hope is to, is to make a connection that I think happens here in the text, a connection between a high view of God and our usefulness in the kingdom. Let me put it to you this way from a quote from a man named Dr. Stephen Lawson. He writes this, the person whom God uses lives with a high view of God. That's a helpful framework to think about that. The person God uses is one who lives with a high view of God. I don't have the author for this one, but maybe this will help as well. A God-saturated life is a life that God delights to use. This is how we are to be the church, not just by coming on Sunday, but by being transformed by the God who saves us. 
I think that Psalm 5 is written and really called upon to be sung in worship. You might have noticed that it's for the flute, so it's very specific. But written and, and, and called upon under such a premise, charging us to have an elevated view of God. I think when David comes before God in prayer, he comes with honesty, he comes with humility, but he also comes solely through the grace and mercy of God through his hesed, which is a Hebrew word for steadfast love, and it has great significance, that word. He fully relies on that hesed in the perfect character of God, and so he comes with a very, very high view of God. The psalm I'm calling a call to prayer in some manner, and I want us to see three key ingredients or elements in the psalm that you can pay attention to and think about in terms of your prayer life compared to David's prayer life, my prayer life compared to David's prayer life. David speaks in terms of three things. He talks about words, but not just words, but also groanings or meditations and cries. Groanings, words, meditations, cries. The psalm is broken into five stanzas. It's poetry, and we see that a lot. And there's kind of this interesting interplay between them, um, kind of a one and then an alternative and then one. So one, three, and five are David praying to God before God, as it were. And then in two and four, he's kind of comparing God against the wicked, a foil, if you were, to elevate his view of God, to see the holiness of God. And we want to kind of frame out uh, how we're going to walk through it this way. But let me just give you this uh, one more quote here, if I may, by a man named P.C. Craigie, who kind of shapes out this idea. This is sort of a way of thinking about it in terms of outline. He writes this, Psalm 5 illustrates with clarity the polarity and tension which characterizes certain dimensions of the life of prayer. Notice, he sees prayer in the psalm too. Of course, all the psalms have prayer and song at their center. On the one side, he writes, there is God. On the other, evil human beings. And the thought of the psalmist alternates between these two poles. He begins by asking God to hear him, but recalls that evil persons have no place in God's presence. He turns back to God again, expressing his desire to worship and his need for guidance. But then is reminded of the human evils of the tongue. Eventually, he concludes in confidence, praying for protection and blessing. This is how we'll frame out uh, the, the psalm by looking at these stanzas and seeing how they alternate. But we'll begin, as we do in every psalm, when it has that, with that, that interesting little thing, the subscript, which is part of Scripture. And we sometimes refer to it as verse zero, and it's quite straightforward here. We don't need to spend any real time here. But this is part of Scripture, to the choir master or to the director of music, depending on your translation. And if that's not specific enough, David here says it's for the flute. So he's quite specific in terms of the charge to use this in song. And then, of course, we're told that it is a psalm or song, right, literally, of David. So we know the author and we know the, the intent, as we often get from uh, the subscript. And so think about this as a, something that is worshipful in its orientation, as all of God's word is. So we'll jump into the first stanza. And we're going to spend some time in the first stanza, but I promise we'll move through the other ones a little bit quicker. But I want to draw some key things out here as we enter in. The main components that we talked about before were words and meditations and cries. And in verse 1, David mentions two of these words and meditations, or words and groanings, as we have translated here. The first one is words. 
And Charles Spurgeon, everybody likes to quote Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon says something interesting. He says, words are not the essence, but the garments of prayer. This is why we like to quote Spurgeon, because he just says cool things like that. Words are not the essence, but the garments of prayer. Now, of course, Spurgeon isn't saying that words have no meaning. They don't matter somehow. Spurgeon most certainly had a very high view of God, and therefore he had a very high view of his word, every last one of his words. What Spurgeon is getting at here is the human element of prayer, the intangible element. What he's getting at is the attitude behind the words, the heart of the matter, if you will, our heart of prayer. You can think about Jesus' words in Matthew 15 when he quotes from Isaiah 29. These people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Spurgeon goes on to implore his listeners saying that they ought to cultivate the spirit of prayer, which he says is even better than the habit of prayer. We're to have a spirit of prayer even more so than a habit of prayer. Of prayer, or a spirit of prayer is preferred over a habit of prayer. He writes, there may be seeming prayer where there's little devotion. So you can have the habit of prayer without any devotion. You can speak with your lips and your heart be far from him. He says, we should begin to pray before we kneel down, and we should not cease praying even after we rise up. And what I want to get at is that I think we can read these opening words here, these opening lines of Psalm 5, is saying that David's plea to God, is that he would hear not only his words, but his groanings, his deep considerations, his meditations would lie at the very heart of his words. But then in verse 2, David adds this next component. He writes, give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. The first part of this verse is actually repeated in a similar fashion in the next psalm, Psalms eight, or Psalm 6, excuse me, verse 8. Uh, which is also a psalm of David. We read there, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Psalm 5, give attention to the sound of my cry. Psalm 6, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. In our verses in Psalm 5, we notice that David adds to his words and to his groanings the sounds of his cry. Now here's a pretty interesting little nugget to note The Hebrew word for sound can also very easily be translated as voice. In other words, it may not be all that easy or even possible to convey the groanings of our hearts to another person, but those groanings have, as it were, a voice, and a voice that God hears. As we move on through the verse, we see that David does, in fact, hold this very, very high view of God. And what follows, I think we could get to by asking a question. When David requests a listening, when he calls for consideration regarding his groanings and the attention that he has to give to his cries, to whom does he speak? To whom does he direct his plea? That's kind of an easy question, right? God, of course, But notice that David gives not only specific titles, but also specific pronouns. My king and my God, for to you do I pray. If I could borrow from 
uh, Charles Spurgeon one more time. He calls attention to the use of ma here twice using in his language in his day what he calls the pith and marrow of David's plea. Yeah, I know, it's old-fashioned language. But what he's really saying is the, the, the use of my twice gets to the heart of the matter. Very little but very important pronouns strike at the heart of our call to pray. Why should we pray, we might ask? Because the God to whom we pray is our God, our King and our God. As Paul put it, we are no longer aliens or strangers but citizens of heaven and with this wonderful status solely because of what God has done. He's our God. In fact, Jesus teaches us to pray our Father. We know this because we're told of it in the Word. But to be even more specific within the Word, we're told that God has covenanted with us, that he's established relationship with us. He's promised to us. He's made oath with us, and he's shed his blood for us. He is indeed our King and our God, and he delights to not only hear your prayers, but is equipped and loves us so that he hears our prayers, our words, our voice of our groanings, and meets every one of our needs. David adds this little phrase at the end of this, for to you do I pray. David lifts up his prayers to no other God. He directs his prayer to, to the one true God and king, he notes. And, of course, we should remember, David knows a little something about what it is to be a king. He was a gracious and good king, but he was a fallen and human king. And if he and his fallen human is still desired to provide for his people, how much more does David understand the limitless might and the limitless love of our heavenly king to provide for everything that we need to bring us to completion in Christ? The last part of this first stanza tells us something else about David. It tells us that David is a scheduled prayer. I've got to work on my enunciation for that. He's a prayer, and he's a scheduled prayer. Yes, we just said a little bit ago that a spirit of prayer is preferred to a habit of prayer, but church history is replete with testimonies that elevate habitual prayer as a means of developing a spirit of prayer. And so what does David do? He prays in the morning. Oh, Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. David prays in the morning. He begins his day with God. But notice what else he says. He begins his day with God and he prepares a sacrifice for him. And then he watches. What does he mean by that? Well, David prepares literal sacrifices in some ways, and we are also praying sacrificially. But in essence, what David is saying is that he lifts up his prayer to God sacrificially. That is, it costs him something, and expectantly. David prays with a certain expectation. He doesn't just give the sacrifice. He watches to wait and see expectantly what God will do. John Bunyan, the famous writer of the Pilgrim's Progress, once wrote this, that prayer is a shield to the soul and a sacrifice to God. He also said that it was a scourge for Satan. So let me ask a reflection question here. Are our prayers offered to God sacrificially, and do we pray expectantly? Thomas Adams, 
name you probably have never heard of was a man who wrote a book called Private Thoughts on Religion. He wrote it nearly 200 years ago. So this is not a modern thing. In this book, Adams confesses quite plainly something that I think many of us struggle with. He says this, that he prayed faintly and with reserve merely to quiet his conscience and for present ease, almost wishing not to be heard. He said prayer and other spiritual exercises were often weariness to him. That's a striking thought, an honest thought, I think, for some, if not many. I wonder how that is. Remember, remember Bunyan's word, prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God. But he also says prayer is a scourge for Satan. Anybody know what a scourge is? It's a tormentor or one who is a menace to someone else. And I wonder if your prayers are like that to your greatest spiritual enemy. Joel Beakey once wrote these words. He says, the great possibilities of prayer should awaken us to the meager realities of our own praying. The great possibilities of prayer, he wrote, should awaken us to the meager realities of our own praying. And then he asks this pressing question. He says, is prayer the means by which we storm the gates of heaven and take the kingdom by force? Is it a missile that crushes satanic powers? Or is it like a harmless toy that Satan sleeps beside? Theologian, pastor, and professor Greg Nichols observes something quite striking about a prayerless person. Several observations. He said prayerless persons are ungrateful because they don't thank God because they're not praying. They're self-righteous because they don't confess sin. They're self-centered because they don't ask God to bless other people. They're presumptuous because they do not pray even for daily needs. They're irreverent because they do not praise God or pray for his kingdom to come. And lastly, they're unfriendly to God because his, their prayerlessness evidences that they don't even enjoy being with God. I wonder where we rank in our spiritual lives with prayer. How important is it? How transforming is it? How central is it to us uh, as Christians? Let me borrow from uh, Dr. Beakey one more time. He gives us five essentials of prayer. There's lots that you could list here. Don't get me wrong. These aren't the only ones. But they're a way to kind of focus our thoughts and think about the place and value of prayer. Here's the first one. Prayer is essential for the well-being of your own soul. I probably don't need to expand upon that. You kind of get that. But let me just say this. If you, as a creature, have the gift of communion with your creator through prayer, then obviously it is for the well-being of your soul whom your creator made and gifted you. What a profound privilege it is that you and I can enter into the divine communion that exists between the Son and the Father through the Spirit. You're invited, you're commanded to come into that, and it is indeed essential for the well-being of your soul. The second one is that it's essential for you to fulfill your calling in life, no matter what it is. As I said before, every person has a calling, every person. Every person in this room has a calling from God. It's not just for the church. 
No matter what you do in the church and in the world, you are called by God to do it. If you're not harming someone or doing evil or perpetuating evil, then you are fulfilling a call that God has put in your life, and you need prayer to fulfill that well. You need to be in communion with the one who gifted you with that calling, no matter what that calling is, to do it well. Prayer is essential to this. Third, prayer is one of the most Christ-like activities you can engage in. Put quite simply, Jesus prayed, and prayed a lot. And we see that in Scripture. We see snippets of it in Scripture. He thrived on communion with his Father. To pray is to be Christ-like. For prayer is God's appointed means of distributing the blessings of his kingdom and the gifts of Christ to his people. We want to serve in the church and serve in the community and serve in the world, and God has gifted us to do that, blessed us to do that, and he cultivates those gifts through prayer. And lastly, and this is one of the ones I think is most jarring, it is unoffered prayer, not unanswered prayer, that is our greatest problem. Unoffered prayer, not unanswered prayer. That is our greatest problem. Let me give you another old guy. William Bridge wrote another book about prayer, a lifting up for the downcast way back in 1845. Here's what he said. He said, it's a mercy to pray even though I may never receive the mercy prayed for. Just the gift of being in communion with the Father is merciful. You don't always get what you want in prayer because you don't get to manipulate God. But the privilege of communing with him is gift in and of itself, reflective of the nature of relationship as creatures made in his image. And so the call here is to pray, of course, and to do so always, to do so in the morning and in the evening, to pray uh, with words and with groanings and with cries, even tears. And let me remind you of our call to worship from Hebrews 5, verse 7 as the pinnacle illustration of this, which is why I chose it. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Prayers and supplications clearly with words, but not just words, but with loud cries and with tears and with reverence. And David adds to that, which of course Jesus clearly did, expectancy, Prayers that consist of not only these words and groanings and tears and reverence and expectancy, all of these things are very much in keeping with a very high view of God, a God uh, life that is saturated with God, a God, a life that God, excuse me, delights to use. That's the charge uh, that I think this psalm puts before us. So as we shift to the second stanza, I'm, I have a subtitle here, is Cultivating a High View of God. Again, we're, David is l considering the wicked as he does this, and this serves to elevate his view of God. For you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. I said it already, but I'll say it again. One of the things we can notice here is that David's approach to God is one of honesty and of humility, but also of confidence. 
David's confidence in approaching God in prayer is not based on his holiness, not based on his character, but on God's holiness and character. What we see in these verses is David's attention, as I said, being diverted. He's turned aside to consider the wicked, as I said. And here we see David cultivating this high view of God. When we read these words, what we can take of that is that we simply cannot be a people who express a certain degree of apathy towards evil. We can't be okay with it. We can't tolerate it in our entertainment or anywhere else, and we do. We can't shift our behavior to something more timid around others who have less than a high view of God. We can't simply come to church on Sunday because it's the thing we do. David Mathis wrote this about Christian fellowship. He said, Christian fellowship is dying the death of domestication and triviality. Sadly, I love that quote because sadly, I think it captures something of Christian fellowship. Dying the death of domestication and triviality. What distinguishes your fellowship as Christian and not mere socialization is its centeredness on Christ. It's the transformative power of Christ when I fellowship with others. It's because of the bond I have in Christ with them, not because of any other bonds or interests, though those may be nice, but they are most secondary. If you've taken the new members course, you've heard this next quote. Mathis goes on to contrast modern-day domesticated and trivialized fellowship with that of the early church's notion and understanding of fellowship. And he writes these words. He says, the fellowship that the first Christians shared wasn't anchored in a love for pizza and pop and a nice clean evening of fun among the fellow churchified. Instead, he writes, its essence was in their common Christ and their common life or death mission together in his summons to take the faith worldwide in the face of impending persecution. I'm sure some of you have heard me read that quote before. Good quotes should be read more than once. It's a good quote because it challenges us to think about what genuine Christian fellowship is like. David's aversion to this comparison between God and the wicked offers us a similar challenge. If we gather here simply because it's what we do, God is not pleased. Because it's impossible to simultaneously maintain a high view of God and a spirit of apathy. It's impossible to simultaneously maintain toleration for the world and love for God. It's impossible to shelter yourself from the world and to not evangelize and to not disciple and simultaneously maintain a high view of God. Let's take a minute to look a little bit more closely at what David writes. He says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. I'm reminded of a number of passages here in in Scripture because quite a bit of them talk about God's uh, inability to, to dwell with evil. Isaiah's commissioning as a prophet is one in Isaiah 6. And when Isaiah, who was by all accounts a good and even perceived a righteous man, when he stood in the manifest presence of God's holiness, what did he do? He pronounced a curse upon himself. And why did he do it? He did it because not only he, but the people he came from had unclean lips. I, I wonder if we're the kind of people that think, well, you know, if you say a few things that are not appropriate, that's kind of a low-level sin. That sin for Isaiah was the sin that caused him to pronounce a curse upon himself, to tremble before God. 
evil may not dwell with you, David writes. We can think about Peter. Before Jesus, in Luke chapter 5, we hear the story about Jesus who borrows Peter's boat and gets out a little bit in the water so he can preach to the people so he doesn't get crushed by the throngs, the crowds. And when he's done, he says to Peter, go out in the deep water and cast your net for a catch. Now, Peter and his fishermen buddies are skilled and experienced fishermen. They know these waters. They've been fishing them all their lives. And they fished all night, and they didn't catch anything. And they, they're kind of like, whatever. But they say, well, master, if you say so, so be it. And they go cast the net, and what happens? They get a catch. They get such a big catch that they can't haul the nets in. They get their partners to help, and they fill two boats full of fish, so much so that the boats begin to sink. And when Peter sees it, here's what he says. He looks at Jesus. He falls on his knees before him and says, go away from me, for I am a sinner. Evil may not dwell with you, David writes. And David is not content with some generic disapproval of evil. He gets specific, boasting and lying and murder he speaks of. Look here in verse 5, David says something that should be jarring to every last one of us. You hate all evildoers. Of course, God hates all evil, but specifically here, it's not just evil, but the evil doers. David is teaching us something striking here, that God doesn't draw lines of distinction or division between sin and sinner. Sometimes we say love the sin but hate the sinner, and I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing to practice. It's a good thing in terms of sharing the gospel, but keep in mind, God doesn't say that. God doesn't say love the sinner but hate the sin. In fact, one of the things that God does say is quite the opposite. In Romans 9, Paul's quoting from the prophet Malachi, and he says that God says that Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Yeah. You're all giving me that look like this is uncomfortable. It's supposed to be. That's the point. God doesn't say Jacob I love, but the sin of Esau I hated. That would be much more comfortable. But that's not what he says. And if it is true that God merely hates the sin and not the sinner, then it must also be true that God only loves the righteousness of the saint and not the saint themselves. And, of course, that isn't true. And this should charge us, challenge us, convict us to not trample upon the grace of God, to not cheapen it by expecting God to let us off the hook, as it were, whenever we sin, because God hates sin. And if you are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that is, if you uh, stand on your own as a sinner, not a sinner saved by grace, not a sinner who cries out to God for mercy, but merely as a sinner, unrepentant, then God hasn't set his love on you, and you are an enemy of God. In fact, the scriptures declare this in an unapologetic fashion right from the very beginning of the Bible. When sin enters into the world, we're told in the book of Genesis that sin created enmity between us and God. Sin made us enemies with God. Paul says it plainly in Romans 5. He says, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since, therefore, we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him but uh, from the wrath of God, by him from the wrath of God, excuse me. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now 
that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Certainly we hear the gospel in these words and the unconditional love of God poured out even towards his enemies and even towards his redeemed, more so towards his redeemed people. But it doesn't negate the powerful words of David here or of God himself elsewhere. Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated. If we live a life of sin unrepentant, we die enemies of God. And I can think of no greater reason to get on your knees and to pray with words and groanings cries. It's not something that you want to say enthusiastic amen to, but we should feel a degree of conviction to that. How do we do that? Well, the psalm leads us to that. The subtitle here is how to enter God's presence. Because as believers, as saints, we can be confident that God does love us, that he set his love on us. In fact, he does that. He sets his love. Paul says to us that we've been predestined in love. That's the language that Paul uses. And David acknowledges that he is only able to enter into the presence of God through the abundance of his steadfast love. That is his hesed love. David shows reverence here as well, bowing before his holy temple in the fear of you, he writes. David is now turning his attention back to God in this stanza with honesty, with humility, and with full awareness of his own sinful state. We read here in verse 7, but I am righteous. I'm not like those wicked people unable to stand in your house on my own. Maybe you're thinking about something in the New Testament, the story of the self-righteous Pharisee and the humble, honest, and painfully self-aware tax collector. Remember that story? David doesn't say that, obviously. Instead, in full awareness, much like the tax collector of his own sin, he says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, your hesed will enter into your house. And remember, this word is a specific and unique word for love it's translated uh, loving kindness or steadfast love here, but there's something even more specific and intentional about that. It is covenantal in its nature. It is the type of love that God speaks of when he speaks to his people, the kind of love that is only directed towards his bride. I can express a great deal of love for a number of different people, and I do. I know that's hard to believe, but, but it's not the kind of love I have for my family. That's different. And it's certainly not the kind of love I have for my bride. David enters God's house based on God's abundant and steadfast love. His hesed, his unconditional love that he sets upon his people. And this love transforms the evildoer, clothes them in his righteousness. This hesed justifies us, makes us right before God, and allows us to enter into his presence when I was preparing this, I was thinking way, way back now, nearly 10 years ago, when the, the popular Christian band, Big Daddy Weave, came out with a song called Overwhelm. Anybody ever remember that song, Overwhelmed? There's a line there that goes, God, I run into your arms unashamed because of mercy. I run into your arms unashamed because of mercy. We enter God's presence solely because he is determined to set his love on us 
And genuine recipients of that love can be evidenced by fruit. And David actually gives us two different fruits here. The first one is reverence. As we said before, I bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. What does the book of Proverbs say about the fear of the Lord? It's the beginning of wisdom, right? David doesn't flaunt the righteousness that God grants to him, allowing him to enter his presence as if somehow it's on his own. He is humbled by it. As a sign that he is genuinely a recipient of God's hesed, his love, he demonstrates a clarity of vision. He sees with spiritual eyes that on his own he could not stand in the house of the Lord. I wonder if, if we are considering this deeply or with any regularity in our hearts. When we gather as a people, this building becomes the house of God. Not magically or spiritually, but because each one of us are temples of the Holy Spirit. And when all of these temples get together, all the more the Lord is present with his people. He delights to dwell with his people, and we owe reverence to that. A long, long time ago, when my hair was more like the color of my jacket, that should give you a time frame. When I was, uh, first started going to Goodwill, and I met my wife, and we had not hardly met yet. In fact, it was right before we met. I did something that she found a bit disrespectful. So I was dressed in what I thought was really cool, uh, 80s leather, leather jacket. It was probably pleather. Uh, you know, I wasn't really dressed very reverently, but that wasn't the big issue. It was before service. What I did was I, I kind of walked up to the, the arm of the pew and I put my foot on it and put, rested my elbow on my knee while I was talking to somebody. Didn't think much of it, but she found that rightly disrespectful. I'll never forget that. I hadn't had a lesson about respect in church since I was a kid, and my wife-to-be uh, started with that. A good little thing to learn. I know it's kind of a, a, an outdated illustration, but, I mean, if you were to go to someone who's important and have a meeting with them, we used to use the president a lot. I think we're a divided country, and we don't see the office of presidency the way we used to. But let's just say you met a, 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 or had a chance to meet a wealthy uh, person or an important person, um, and you went into their house, and they were, they were well-to-do, and so they had security people around, um, and they brought you into the waiting room. But as you were there, if you, you know, kind of fluffed through the magazines and didn't put them where they belong, maybe you put your feet up on the, on the table or your feet on the coffee table and kicked back, the security guard would probably notice that, and you might not even get your meeting. We're called to have reverence. We're called to have reverence before God. And David is acutely aware of his own shortcoming here, and that's why he, he exercises reverence, gratitude, and reverence to God. But he also asks for guidance. That's the second fruit that God has indeed set his love on his people. David and hopefully us are increasingly aware that we're not only not righteous, but that we need God to, to lavish his love, his hesed on us, and to lead us, to guide us in his righteousness, to make our path straight, to use the language of uh, much of the Psalms. One of the ways that God does that is through the, the purpose of the means of grace, uh, prayer and fellowship, the word of God. And so when we ask you this question, how do we enter into the presence of God? And let me presume to give you a short answer for that. We enter into the presence of God with humility and with reverence and with gratitude and with full dependence on the loving 
kindness, the steadfast love, the hesed covenantal love of God. That is the only way we enter into the presence of God. David now turns his attention back to the wicked as a foil. And I have here as a subtitle is what offends you, what offends God. We read, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. You might hear this somewhere else. Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 3. This really is the first recorded imprecatory prayer, that is a prayer against the wicked in the Psalms. But I want us to, to see something here. David's fervor here is not some expression of self-righteousness. When he cries out to God, as he does in the next verses, to make them bear their guilt, to let them fall by their own counsel, it's not in response to offense that's personal for David apart from God, but it's in response to an offense that is personal to David because it is an offense to God. That's what we see in verse 10. For they have rebelled against you, is what David says. Let me be brief here in this stanza. And just ask that direct question. Is what offends you? What offends God? Now let's go to the final stanza here. And I have as the subtitle, Rejoice. For our only refuge from God is in God. David once again finally turns back to God in a final contrast between the wicked and those upon whom God has set his love. And as evidence of this distinction that's found in the language of the verses itself, those who comprise the antithesis of the the wicked are those who take refuge in God, those who love his name. Because every human being stands before God. Every human being will face the wrath of God. And the only difference between the righteous and the wicked is that the righteous take their refuge in God. They're clothed in Christ to absorb the wrath of God for us. And so this final subtitle is rejoice. Rejoice for your only refuge from God is found in God. In the ancient church, they used to describe this as the cruciform love of God. Where the love of God meets the wrath of God in the cross of Christ. The love of God is sat- or the wrath of God is satisfied in the love of God by the love of God in the cross. David is closing out this psalm by rejoicing, by singing for joy. And notice there's a correlative emotion here to crying out in prayer for the blessings and protections that belong to those who love God's name. Maybe we can think of Boaz and Ruth when considering this language in this final, final stanza. God spreading his protection much like a wing over those who love his name. But David gives us one last image of this great protection. He gives us a shield. Probably most famously, it's the Apostle Paul who saw the importance of a shield to deflect the flaming arrows of the enemy and correlated that piece of armor with faith. So let me close with a little challenge for you to consider. One borrowed from the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther, the famous reformer, is making his way to Augsburg, Germany. He's in trouble. He stirred the pot. He's a protester. He gets summoned there. He's got to appear before the cardinal, Cardinal Cajetan, and, and he's got to answer 
for what he's done wrong. What Rome said were heretical teachings, which were not, but of course that's what they were saying. And as he's approaching Augsburg, one of the cardinal's servants is taunting him, kind of like the people taunting David as he reflects on them even in the psalm. One writer marks that the, that the servant's mocking uh, Martin Luther this way. He's asking him this question. Where will you find shelter if your patron, the elector of Saxony, should desert you? It's just 16th century language. He had some people of favor and power that were going to help him. And boy, if they didn't help him, Luther was going to be in trouble. And they were trying to taunt him, and stir him to say, well, what happens if it doesn't work out as you go uh, to before the cardinal? You might imagine what Luther's response would be. Where would he find protection? Where would he find shelter? Under the shelter of heaven, Luther would say. Because Luther took refuge and rejoiced in the name of the Lord. He exalted his name. He expressed confident victory in the name of Jesus. He believed that his king and his God would extend his shield, would spread his protection, his wing over him. And in this great truth, he rejoiced. The obvious question to ask here is, where do you take your refuge? Where do you find your peace and your solace? But in truth, the psalm, as we come to a close, has asked a whole bunch of reflective questions. I want to just go through them now as a way of closing. We first saw this question, are our prayers offered to God sacrificially, and do we pray expectantly? We remind you with words and with groanings and with cries and with reverence, all of those two, what shapes and defines your prayer life? The second question we asked was this, how do we enter into the presence of God? Again, with reverence and gratitude and humility, but also only through the steadfast, the hesed, covenantal love of God. Next, we asked this, is what offends you, what offends God? Let me give it to you from a slightly different perspective. Same questions asked a little bit differently for you to think about them this way. One, do we pray with more than words but with tears and cries and reverence and expectancy? Do we do that? Are we developing an increasing hatred towards sin? That's a fruit and an evidence of our growing in that. By what means do we presume to enter into the household of God? How do we enter in, hopefully, solely by the hesed, covenantal, steadfast love of God? I love the name of God, which is a theme here. But I think they all boil down to this question. Do I have a high view of God? And if so, am I being used for his kingdom? As we come to the table, I want us to be considering that deeply. What does our prayer life look like? And how is it reflective of our view of God? Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and your, 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 our time in your word by your spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would convict and challenge and encourage us through that. And as we come to the table, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would take these elements, this cup and this bread, and you would set them apart for a holy purpose, that they might become to our faith your body broken and your blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for this and pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org.
God bless. <laughs>